Welcome to On Balance. I'm your host, Dr. Rod Berger. I'll be your guide as we explore the stories of today with the personalities impacting tomorrow. Welcome to On Balance. Well, for those of you that know me, or at least have followed my interviews throughout the years, you know that I have a a great passion for borders beyond the U.S. and for the ways in which we look at solving problems, supporting young people, and looking at sustainable ways to uh, support planet Earth. And today, wow, uh, I think I know I'm in for a treat. I know that you're in for a treat, but we're going to be talking to leadership of the Rosenberg Institute in Switzerland. And I had the pleasure of speaking with Rosenberg and even students previously. And wow, I don't know if I thought more about what they're doing as a parent or someone who works in education, uh, but very, very happy to be spending some time here with Bernhard uh, Gottemann and uh, Anita Gottemann. Uh, she's the director and head of innovation. He is a director general. And this school has been around since 1889 and is now in its fourth generation of family leadership. And you, you denote, Bernhard, we're going to start with you as the artisans of education. Now, the marketing side of me says that's just fantastic because I start to think about a blank canvas and, and applying paint to it. But what does that mean when we think about that and the types of offerings you you are providing, not just these young people, but their families and communities that go far beyond the campus of, um, of Rosenberg Institute? Talk about the artisans of education. The artisans of education is really all about appreciating and understanding that all students in our school and you know all humans around the world are inherently individual and um, they have different talents different interests different strengths uh, different goals for the future uh, and so it is very much in the dna of rosenberg to say um, if this is the case and we know that we also must provide individual ed- uh, education uh, and from our point of view an artisan does exactly this um, every Um, piece, every uh, piece of art they produce, meaning in our case, somebody's education and somebody's uh, future that they help to shape uh, is a unique piece. Um, We we don't have a cookie cutter approach. um, So we will go and carefully map um, students' uh, learning journeys uh, by looking uh, into their interests, by giving them as much exposure as possible for them to identify their talents, but at the same time, keeping their education very broad so they can take inspiration pretty much from from anywhere. Uh, And so they have a a very holistic view on life and a very good understanding of how things interconnect. And so ultimately artisanship um, or artisans of education is caring about every little detail, appreciating that uh, every human being is um, a complex individual with their uh, personal needs and ensuring that we can maximize their potential through this um, um, beautiful uh, learning environment that we're privileged to have at Rosenberg. Anita, let's talk about that in the context of innovation, because one of the things that I experienced in speaking with some of the students at Rosenberg was that they're provided fantastic opportunities, but also room to breathe as individuals. And I think that speaks to the artisan element that Bernhard is talking about. Can you touch on how you look at innovation, given sort of where we are as a gig economy globally? Uh, we have now, you know, younger and younger entrepreneurs, but it feels like what you, the way in which you're couching it is very timely for young people that have opinions, want the space to be able to develop those opinions and then apply them 
to different areas that hopefully then become expertise and support not only their their longevity as a, as a career professional, but in what they're doing with purpose. Talk about that from the innovation uh, landscape. Thank you for this question. You could have not given me a better question, but I have to tell you. Um, and you have to stop me if I talk too much. So for me, my process is twofold. One is always looking at what is required and um, useful to the future. And um, Bernard, you have to stop me if I go a bit too far because you must know, Rod, I'm a bit of an enfant terrible. I diss a lot of things in education um, because I just think it's very stale and old and um, yes, rigid. Um, so I try to bring in new things for, for our students to have a chance to really learn what they require in the future. And most of my feedback is, in fact, from, from our families, from our parents. Um, they're very smart people. They're entrepreneurs. They're usually self-made. They're hard workers. They know exactly what their kids need. And if you just open yourself to a conversation and listen to them, you'll know exactly what you need for the future, right? Um, and on the second level of my, of my process is the students. I think every single child on this planet has a strong point of view. I think they have strong experience. I think um, good or bad experiences will form a human being. Now, when they come to Rosenberg, they are often for the first time able to be free, able to live without prejudice, without judgments, um, able to live um, a life where they discover the passion, they discover what they're good at. They realize, oh my gosh, I do have something good. Oh, I like that. I wanna do more of that. And they relax. And the moment they relax, they start to talk. And the moment they talk, this is when you have, you know, a conversation, sometimes a critique, um, you know, uh, analysis. And these kids are, I just told Bernard today, they are my best feedback. And they are my, they challenge me every day. They challenge me every day. I get text messages from them. I get emails from them. They ask me questions. Um, that are just, um, yeah, they bring me out of my comfort zone where I have to think, wow. Anita, that, that, so that what I'm hearing from you is that there is a lost art when we think about dialogue, right? Mm -hmm. we, we think about the power of dialogue and conversation. It's not about me talking to you or telling you. It's about creating an environment that is fertile for conversation to occur because that's where innovation comes from. It's not about sort of me telling Bernhard or him telling me, Rod, this is how you have to do this, but providing an open opportunity. And, and I wanna continue on the innovation thread here, but that was one of the things I took from the students that I spoke with. There was not this deference to me as an adult, not that they weren't respectful at all, they were incredibly respectful, but it wasn't as if they were waiting for me to move the conversation along. They felt comfortable and strong enough in their own skin, their own, sense of agency to contribute to the conversation and not to shy away from an opinion that they didn't either sort of workshop with me ahead of time to see if it would land okay, <laughs> right? And that to me, that's a skill set that if I'm a hiring manager, I'll speak use sort of US vernacular here, that's what I want to hire. What I don't want to hire is a robot that has been programmed to just basically follow orders. Am I, am I tracking with what you're talking about and, and that that impacts the way in which you think about innovation as an offering at the school? Absolutely, yes. Absolutely, yes. And I tell you, these students, they have this freedom to speak to you. And I hope you enjoyed the conversation because they're fabulous kids. But the, the, to speak to you the way they speak with you, they, they, as you said, they have agency, but they also have the goods to back it up. 
You see, and I think this is this is key here that they are opinionated, but they haven't heard something or read something, and they're just throwing it at you. They are confident because they know if you come back at them with something, they'll be able to respond as well. And 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 I think often what schools try to do is to build that expertise and that professionalism through um, through curricula, through exams. But they do exactly the wrong thing. They stop kids from talking and they stop asking them how they feel and what they think. They teach them exams. Yeah. And so then these kids are or these these people who then take exams, they are thrown completely out of their comfort zone as soon as the exam question is asked in a different manner. What is different about my students is they still have their exams. They still have that knowledge. They are able to communicate with you on par, although they're quite young. Right. And they can tell you their feelings and their experiences. But no matter how you ask that question, they will give you that answer because it's their opinion. It's their point of view. They've actually thought about it. They've analyzed it. And because we're talking about educa education and innovation, I know that's, I mean, I don't know if you're still interested in um, humanics and the concept of humanics, but that's one of the strands of humanics is, is human literacy. It's asking yourself who's in front of you, who's communicating with you, what are they communicating to you and why? Yeah, what do they want from you? Do they have an agenda? And for that, you need bravery, yeah, to, to, to analyze this and say, actually, I'm going to go and speak to that person. I'm not afraid of this. I have strong opinions. I can back them up. And we're going to have a great conversation, yeah? It, it speaks to one's constitution, I think, uh, to understand that. I, I love, and I just wrote that down, so not that I'm going to steal it, Anita, but I love this concept, the discussion point around human literacy and who's in front of you. Uh, Bernhard, let, let's utilize that and let's sort of link to what in education we will call social emotional learning, right? And that if there's ever a time, especially what we were talking off air about my country here in the US and sort of all the challenges that we're having related to the, the great resignation and now the big quit, which is now tied to education and how many educators are looking to leave the profession. Um, how do we, I think, look, I think people have great intention when it comes to social emotional learning, which means to say we want to create a safe environment for these young people to have the kind of discourse that Anita's talking about so that they can innovate and learn and apply that to their real lives. But I think sometimes there's a great divide between intention and the realities of creating a safe environment whereby it's not just my physical safety, but it's my, it is, it truly is the energy not to get sort of, you know, um, I mean, I want to stay here on planet Earth, but it, but it's about creating an energy where I feel safe enough, where whereby if I make a mistake in a conversation, I've, I'm allowed to take in that information that Anita has given me and then apply that through the filters that I feel that I've built and I've structured along the way to feel confident in my constitution. How do you think about it and how has it changed based on parent involvement, parent need, community request of your students when you think about creating a very comprehensive, safe environment for these students? Um, I think that's a very good question. And I think uh, Rod, this ties down to uh, educators leaving the comfort zone. Um, so it's not only about the students feeling comfortable in um, uh, taking risks or exploring um, something that is unknown, because, you know, that's what um, we expect of them, even in traditional schools. Uh, but this doesn't happen. It's because the, the teachers never leave the comfort zone in a traditional teaching environment. Um, I give you a good example. Uh, we teach some very innovative courses um, that include um, industry grade robots or very, very sophisticated, new, innovative technologies or, or ideas or concepts and practices. And very often 
our artisans who teach the course will not know exactly what is the outcome, what exactly is the learning objective, except immersing uh, in, in, in an area, in a topic, and then ensuring that uh, we, we document uh, the experiences and we are able to communicate and we are able to link back um, to, to, to other challenges or problems that we have come across in other subject areas. Now, that takes a special type of teacher. That takes an artisan to, to, to be brave enough um, and to say, well, I'm going to uh, be somebody who will accompany the students as a guide on this, this uh, journey of discovery. I will ensure that um, I'll provide the right inputs, but I can stand in front of this group of students and say, I don't know the answer, so let's think how we're going to find out. And I think this is a very, very important concept for 21st century education um, because, you know, knowledge, as we all know, is one thing, but that is available uh, in many different ways. And uh, machines uh, already today have much better abilities to, to retain uh, knowledge and they're increasingly getting better also at matching knowledge and organizing data. So what we need to do, uh, be able to do as human beings when we talk about problem solving and addressing these challenges is really to say when we hit the wall or when we are, um, when we have to deal with ambiguity, which is the essence of life, uh, the moment you have left the constraints of the academic world, um, how do we address that? And this is what we are um, teaching by providing this type of environment that you described rightfully so as a safe zone um, to, to experience, um, to, to make mistakes, you to create a prototype and go back to the drawing board and say, this is not addressing the needs that we set out, um, set out to address. And so this ties in very nicely with what our parents expect us to do. This is their experience that they have in, a, in, a, in everyday life when they run companies, uh, when, because they are true uh, changers of industries and, and all other areas. Uh, because that's the type of quality they know will be so vital for the future. We're unable to predict the future. Uh, we have some good uh, inclination of what's going to be important. Uh, but these type of skills that we're talking about, uh, we know are going to be of the absolute essence in order to be successful and coexist with intelligent machines um, uh, in the future. Let's discuss what some might find as a touchy subject, but I think it's important to understand sort of how do we scale the Rosenbergs of the world, right? Because it is a very elite school, right? And there are resources there that are not, I mean, that's just sort of the, it is what it is in that regard. But if, if I, if I had a blank canvas, I would want Rosenberg, Rosenberg's all over the place in that regard. So how can we connect the approach, the vigor with which you approach teaching the next generation to schools that have, let's say, different sets of resources and or histories that they bring into the conversation because it, you know, I saw it first. I mean, I experienced it firsthand with the students. I've experienced it firsthand, you know, with, with the two of you that my goodness, this should not be something that is bottled up and kept a secret. Uh, have you thought about that and how should we understand it? Because look, I think we struggle at least in, in, in the United States and North America, wanting everything to be equal and whatever that means to people when it comes to equity access and resource allocation, but, you know, sometimes we also need to have the variety because we learn about ourselves. We learn about how to in, integrate in different elements and variables into our lives 
into our professions and into our education. So we need the Rosenbergs of the world. And we also need Title I schools in, you know, you know, metropolitan area here in the United States. They're all a part of the, the richness of education. So how do we think about Rosenbergs across the world in that manner? Um, I know it's a touchy subject, or maybe, maybe I'm just coming from a US-centric sort of point of view, but I think it's I think it's important for the audience to know how can we think about and apply some of these principles, even if we may not have the same set of resources at our school? I think the following, Rod. There is, uh, of course, uh, we are in this uh, really, truly privileged uh, position that we can um, imagine uh, based on our vision uh, for education and the collaboration with our parents and our wonderful students um, and dream up and implement and work on a daily basis on the ideal school as, as we see it from our point of view. Now, um, this is not something that is easy to scale. However, um, the programs that Anita has uh, pioneered and led over the past few years, such as our talent enrichment program, where we work closely with, with industry partners uh, or um, the uh, Humanics qualification, um, that uh, she's been working on, those are um, concepts that actually do not require um, uh, enormous resources. And we believe that this could be uh, applied probably pretty much in any school around the world, uh, whether they have access to resources or not. Um, so I think there is certainly this idea that uh, some of these concepts could be applied in other schools. And I think would also make for a very, very interesting exchange between different schools and looking what the type of experiences they take away, because it doesn't need to be Boston dynamics. It can be, you know, your um, local um, um, agricultural producer down the road. It can be, um, you know, a, a different type of company because our experiences, um, organizations, uh, may that be universities, uh, but also um, uh, um, economic enterprises, have an interest for dialogue with schools because they are very much uh, interested that things change in schools, that the learning becomes relevant. So opening those doors, uh, again, being brave enough um, to, to reach out uh, is something that we think any school could do. Uh, but what it takes, Rod, is a, a change of mindset and departing from a very traditional, dusty idea of education that regrettably is, is still predominant um, pretty much everywhere around the world. Very, very fair points, uh, Anita. Thank you. So, um, well, yes, I second Barnett what you said, but I would say it's not only the industry partner. You know, yes, you can go to to the business next door or even a farm, and and you learn things that are um, the motion of those things is the same as you know running an AI machine or you know a massive entrepreneurial business. But I want to just talk very quickly about um, care and attitudes. And what I was inspired by, Rod, is you said that you want the U.S. wants equality. They want everything to be equal. Well, you know, equality does not come just because it comes. It's you have to work for it. Yeah. And to work for equality means to work every single day in what you do as an educator, as a teacher, as a parent, as a you know person working at a school. Um, I understand that there is this narrative where people say, well, you can't teach these creative things because I have 30 kids in my classroom. Yeah. 
But really, the moment you teach very creative things, those kids, they will behave. You will not have 30 in the classroom. You'll have 30 listening students who will want to know what you're telling them. So if I can tell any teacher out there is go online and research. These kids are already living in an AI-driven world. And whatever you're teaching them that has been written in a curriculum, you know, 40 years ago, is so boring to them, they will misbehave in your classroom. You talk to them about, you know, Bitcoin, yeah? They will buy into it, I guarantee you. You talk to them about AI, they will buy into it, yeah? Um, do you need a Boston Dynamics robot? It's wonderful. You know, there are robots you can buy online for 20 bucks. And you don't need everybody to have their own. Yes, that's a privilege at Rosenberg. Um, you know, we have a primary class and they they programmed and coded their own robots. And the teacher asked whether you know, they can have each their own robot so they can make that journey with that same robot throughout the year. Of course, it's wonderful, but you can share that robot and you can share that robot between classes. You need a willingness and understanding that your pupils are, are, are ready to buy this new message and, and, and learn about this symbiosis of machines and, and humans. And then you need to think, how am I going to transfer this into my classroom, my teaching, and make my students understand that whether they're now learning French vocabulary or algebra, this is all relevant for the future for them. Um, and I think this is how you can scale Rosenberg best. And just so you know as well, we are working on a, on a system that could be passed on to schools, to other schools, because we, as you, agree that this should be available to all students. I will say this, Anita, my experience of you, which I know the audience is here is hearing this and they're they're not seeing this, um, is I really do appreciate this unapologetic passion that you have for students because I think it's needed in education, not just in my country, but I think globally. Um, if we could if we could change the marketing of global education, I think that would be something that would be a requirement. We, we should not be apologizing for our existence, right? That we have to, we have a responsibility to carve a path, create a path for the next, you know, innovator to create something that can help our species, <laughs> right? Um, not to get too romantic about it, but I think it's incredibly important. And so I think that that passion is is needed and and I hope that it's received with the spirit with which it was delivered because I'm a big, big fan of that. Bernard, let, let's, put a bow on this. Look, fourth generation. Let's talk a little bit about what it's like for you when you close down at night and the private moments you have inside your mind when you think about the responsibility and you think about the role that you play. I mean, this has been a part of your DNA. And I'm sure there are moments in your life or your day periodically where you recognize that, my goodness, you are a linchpin in many ways to the the life of the school um, and where it's going to be going. And I wonder how you balance that, um, not just in the way in which you enjoy what you do, but when you think about the possibilities of what next looks like. Um, my point of view is the following, and maybe, you know, this is uh, important to understand. Um, it was always important for my parents um, that I was able to choose my own path. And so I did not grow up with an expectation that I have to uh, take a certain job or fulfill a certain role. Um, by the way, I think this is a, an ideal way of approaching it. I, 
as we know, when people have choice, um, it will make them happy. You know, you give somebody 10 different brands of milk, they'll still pick exactly the same milk, but they will feel better as a consumer uh, for having had the choice. And in life, it is exactly the same thing. Um, this is more than a job. Um, I, I believe it really is a dedication. Um, and so, um, you know, there could be uh, many other, other things we could be doing together with Anita. But what is important for me is that uh, this is a hard job. We're not, uh, I often say this, I also say this uh, to, to artisans, we're not in the business of selling refrigerators. Uh, everything that we do here counts. Every decision counts. Uh, every conversation, every exchange counts because we don't get a second chance. Um, our work is always about somebody's life and always about somebody's future. So, of course, that means the job is demanding. Uh, but I get this back uh, because the job is also so rewarding. Uh, making a difference um, to people's lives, being in this privileged position to um, positively influence not only the, the faith of individual students, but of course, given the background of our families, uh, to know that uh, many of these students will go out into the world and um, be a, a positive and innovative change, um, that is truly, truly rewarding. My best moment, uh, Rod, of today, uh, after hard, uh, a day of hard work, uh, is to walk through, through our dining hall uh, and speaking to the students and seeing this community that we've built seeing this community being alive, uh, seeing this community thriving um, and engaging with the individual students because that makes, that makes everything worthwhile. Well, I do hope that, that people now spend time and, and search both you, Anita, and uh, the Rosenberg Institute out because I think there's a lot of learning that can take place, a lot of community that can be developed and built uh, for the betterment, not just of young people, but for educators that are looking for inspiration and alternative ways to think about engaging with their students and hopefully by default, enjoying their profession and what they are dedicating uh, as, a, as a life's work. We want to thank uh, Bernhard and Anita uh, of the Rosenberg Institute. You can check them out at, what's the website, what, the website Bernhard? It's www.instrosenberg.ch. Uh, well, again, uh, we're going to keep watching all the wonderful developments. They have fantastic videos where you can actually see this innovation taking place and the power of the young people who are at the helm. Uh, I could not recommend them uh, more highly. They are just incredible people doing really incredible work. And I think that we need to pay attention to innovation, not just here in the U.S., but across the world. Thank you again for joining us for On Balance. I'm your host, Dr. Rod Berger. This concludes another chapter of On Balance. Connect with me via LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram. I'm Dr. Rod Berger.